0: Military Cynicism A soldier's saying Five minutes' cowardice is better than a lifelong dead Quoting W Stieber Even the Prussian Prime Minister von Bismarck was horrified by the atrocities War is hell and whoever lets it loose with the stroke of a quill is a devil, he exclaimed without considering how tirelessly he himself had contributed to it. Anthropological research says that flight is older than attack. Accordingly, the human being would be, admittedly, partly predator, hunter, but not a priori, a warring animal. Nevertheless, the discovery of weapons for beating, throwing, shooting, development of distance... Neocortical development plays a key role in anthropogenesis. If one can assume anything at all about the original tendency of the human psyche regarding struggle and war, one can assume at least this much it prefers avoidance to striking. Cowardly but happy. G. Kleeman, subtitle Why the Contemporary Primitive Human Being Does Not Want to Fight. Frankfurt, Berlin, Vienna, 1981. Those who avoid can initially better secure their chances for survival than those who confront. If cowardice is neutrally understood as the primary inclination to avoid confrontation, in the economy of human drives, it must have priority over the desire to fight. Initially, it is smarter to flee than to hold one's ground. The smarter person yields. But at some point in the process of civilisation it becomes smarter to stand firm than to flee. How this came to be is not our topic here. A couple of historical conceptual lumps may mark out the problem. Ecological competition, increase in population density, Neolithic revolution, the division between mobile herding cultures and sedentary agricultural cultures and so on. The path to history as higher cultures leads through the militarization of tribes and beyond to the state military cynicism can emerge when three male martial character types have assumed clear contours in a society the hero the hesitator and the coward this can even be seen in a rudimentary form in animal species with high intraspecies aggression, e.g. in deer populations. An unambiguous hierarchy of values is established at whose summit the hero stands. Everyone should be basically like him. Heroism is internalized as a model by the males in a combative civilization, but thereby A new socio-psychological training of human beings also becomes necessary, with the aim of acquiring a distribution of martial temperaments not found in nature. Cowardice, present in large quantities as raw material and in everyone, must be reworked into battle-hungry heroism, or at least into brave battle-ready hesitancy. All training of soldiers in the history of combative civilizations works to produce this unnatural alchemy. The noble family contributes to it just as much as the armed peasant family, as do later royal courts, military schools, barracks and public morals. Heroism become, became and remained, in part to the present day, a dominant cultural factor. The cult of the aggressive, triumphant warrior runs through all of recorded history, where we begin to find written records where we begin to find written records there is a high probability that it is the story of a hero of a warrior who has been through many adventures where written records are not found tales of heroes continue indefinitely back to obscure oral origins long before the descendants of those fighters who intervened in European history, as early Carolingian armoured knights wrote about themselves so glowingly in chivalrous poetry. Fascinating stories of the great warriors in the times of migrations, the era of the Nibelungen, were told by the tribes. The division of labour and military temperaments seems to make sense in social terms, The three types represent the advantages of three different tactics or styles of fighting. Heroes make use of the advantages that attack offers in many situations where there is a compulsion to fight. Thus, attack is the best defense. Hesitators constitute the main mass of a reasonable middle position. They fight when they have to, and then they fight energetically but they also know how to curb the danger that can come from the bravado of heroes. Cowards, finally, can occasionally save themselves when all others who stand form are doomed to perish. But that is not supposed to be mentioned, and the coward must be held in contempt, because otherwise the alchemy that is held to make battle-hungry fighters out of timid deserters cannot succeed. Mercilessly, the heroic model of the military group of men is forced on all, the hero stands in the limelight to him the demigod in armor all honor acclamation and esteem are recorded there are three attitudes of consciousness to the psychic ideal and exemplary image according to which one you are the hero whenever success raises him above self-doubt experiences himself as the one who lives at the zenith of his own ideal radiant and self-confident a man who can fulfill his own and collective dreams he will sense the glory of a demigod in himself the thought of losing does not enter his mind hence the breathtaking big-mouthedness of heroes who are certain of victory at the beginning of the battle and after the victory it speaks for the psychology of the war experienced romans that they granted the returned triumphant general a victory procession, procession through his town where he could experience his own deification in the state, and with him, the people who in this way learned to stay in love with success. But they also put a slave on the victor's chariot, who continually had to call him, reflect, Victor, that you are mortal. The apotheosis of the victor, the cult of success, of divinity through battle, and of happy successes, part of the socio-psychological inheritance of humanity from antiquity and even today this experience is repeatedly staged and peddled from sports fields to the olympics pictorially heroes are almost always represented as youths the misfortune of heroes is that they die young the second attitude toward the ideal is that of the hesitator Of the relative hero he probably sees himself as someone who fulfills and obeys the morality of the hero but does not enjoy the glamour of success to be sure the ideal rules him but it does not make him into an exemplary case he fights and dies when there is no way out of it and he can console himself with the certainty that he is prepared to do what is necessary He does not feel the continual need to prove himself, as does the top-notch hero, who must even seek out danger simply to keep up his self-image. The hesitator, however, pays for this with a certain mediocrity. He is neither right at the top nor right at the bottom, and when he dies his name is summarily listed among the dead heroes. Perhaps it is a good sign that modern armies cultivate, right up to the top ranks, the soldier of the hesitator type. Obedience plus thinking for oneself, the citizen in uniform, one who does not have an inner urge to fight. Only in certain military and political leaders is there still a tendency towards the characteristic offensive military. Uh, the characteristic offensive mentality. Falcons, heroes of armament, those hooked on hegemony. The third stance towards the heroic ideal is adopted by the coward. Of course, under the unavoidable pressure of the heroic image, he must seek refuge in a hesitatingly brave masses. He must seek refuge in the hesitatingly brave masses. He must hide the fact that he is really the anti-hero. He must camouflage himself and make himself as unobtrusive as possible. As muddler, improviser, man of few words, he cannot afford to internalize the image of the hero in any rigid way, because otherwise self-contempt would crush him. In him, a slight decomposition of the super-ego is already underway. In the coward's consciousness lies simultaneously the germs of military cynicism, and of a higher critical realism. For through his experience, and self-experience, the coward is forced to reflect and look twice. He can confess his cowardice aloud just a little, otherwise he would be even more despised, as he can simply give it up. In him, to be sure, often poisoned by a drop of self-contempt, a critical potential against the ethics of heroes begins to grow. Because he himself has to dissemble, he will be more sensitive to the pretense of others. When heroes and hesitators succumb to a superior power, the coward, who allows himself to flee, is the sole survivor. Hence the sarcastic saying, horses are the survivors of heroes, we now drop the fiction that we are speaking of a socially homogenous army. It becomes volatile for soldiers' cynicism when consideration is given to military hierarchies, which correspond roughly to the class structure of society. In feudal military structures we find, besides the troop of knightly heroes, mostly an acquired troop of paid knights or mercenaries, and below them the troop of orderlies and aides. Each of these groups also has its own combat morality that corresponds approximately to three military temperaments. For the knight, combat, even if it is about tangible material interests, belongs to his social status and to the aristocratic self-image. In his combat morality, therefore, honour must be given special consideration. Where honour is at stake there is an excess of motivation over and above the small and concrete causes up to fighting for the sake of fighting. This is not the case with mercenaries who have made war their profession. The motley mob of the times of the mercenaries, paid knights but mainly infantry, foot troops, peasants' sons from Switzerland brought to engage in wars, etc. Their motive to fight cannot be heroic because the paid soldier, Italian soldi, money, Conceives of war as a workplace, not a hero's stage, which does not exclude collaborating with the military spectacle of heroes, or even a certain heroism lowered to the level of a craft. Mercenaries are professional hesitators. They wage war because war feeds them, and they intend to survive the skirmishes. The metier as such is already dangerous enough. One does not have to, in addition, challenge death with heroic frills. At the lower end of the hierarchy, finally the orderly fights, above all because an accident of birth made him the serf of a knight who, without him, could neither mount nor dismount a horse, could not even get out of his armour without help. The aides act as a kind of military proletariat whose invisible and unappreciated labour is sublated in the victories of their masters like swallowed surplus value. Entanglements and masculine ideals aside, the servant has no intrinsic motivation to fight except, as far as possible, to keep himself alive during the fighting. For him it would be realistic to be cowardly from the bottom of his heart. The military cynical process can now be set into motion, and as always it begins at the lower, cynical realistic position sancho panza is its first great representative without much reflection this clever little peasant knows that he has a right to cowardice just as his poor old noble master don Quixote has a duty toward heroism but those who view the heroism of the master with sancho panza's eyes inevitably see the craziness and blindness of heroic consciousness This cheeky military enlightenment, which Cervantes unrelentingly lays out, reveals that the old desire for a hero's fight is an anachronism, and that all purportedly noble occasions to fight are nothing more than pure projections of the knight's imagination. Thus, windmills stand for giants, prostitutes for ladies to be heroically loved, and so forth. To be able to see this, the narrator himself requires the realistic foot-soldier's plebeian perspective, and beyond the social permission to speak a language befitting this perspective. This could not have happened before the late Middle Ages, when the knights lost their technical superiority in weaponry to the plebeian infantry, and when armed mobs of peasants more and more frequently served troops of knightly heroes annihilating defeats. Since the 14th century, the heroic star of armoured horse combat has in any case, was in any case, dissent. Since the 14th century, the heroic star of armoured horse combat was in any case in descent. With this, the moment had arrived when anti-heroism found its language, and when the cowardly view of heroism became publicly possible. Once the masters had to swallow their first defeats, the servants sensed their real power. Now, one can laugh realistically. The constitutions of armies after the Middle Ages, up to Napoleonic times, indeed even up to contemporary times, reveal a paradoxical distortion of the original connections between combat morality and the type of weaponry. The ancient hero was a lone fighter, just as the knight was in feudalism. He sought to prove himself in the duel, but best of all in the constellation of one against many. Modern warfare, however, tendentially depreciates the individual fight. Wars are decided by formations and mass movements. Using the Roman Legion as its model, the modern organisation of armies pushes the genuinely heroic functions, combined assault, standing firm, man-to-man combat, etc., Towards the bottom. This means that the demands made of heroes fall more and more on those who, according to their nature and motivation, tend to be hesitators or cowards. In modern infantries, then, the schizoid drill and heroism, the instilling of an anonymous and unacknowledged courage to die, must be carried out. The top officers, who, by virtue of their strategic position, are not as endangered, shove the risk of heroism death on the front line, more and more onto those who actually have nothing at stake in the war, and who often were only acquired as troops accidentally or by force. Compulsory conscription, extortion of the poor, enticement with alcohol, a way out for superfluous peasants' sons, etc. As soon as some space had been made in modern soldiery for the well-founded realism of the cowards, kinesism. The military cynical process has stepped up to a higher level. The answer to it now comes from the modern, cynical realism of royalty. Of course, this realism also knows that not one of the poor devils in uniform can have heroic motives, but they should be heroes nevertheless, and look the so-called hero's death in the face, as normally only aristocrats do. For this reason, armies after the Middle Ages are the first social organs that methodically cultivate schizophrenia as a collective condition. In them, the soldier is not himself, but another, a piece of the heroic machinery. From time to time, it also happens that a leader lets his mask fall and reveals that he indeed sympathizes with the poor devil's wish to live, but he cannot acknowledge this wish. Dogs, do you want to live forever? The cynic has thoroughly understood his cynical dogs, but nevertheless people have to die. When Frederick II of Prussia speaks thus, in a patriarchal, humorous tone of voice, we are listening to an enlightened master's consciousness in the second round. It has understood the hero humbug, but needs the hero's death for the time being as a political tool. Here, for the sake of Prussia's glory. On this note, have fun being blown to smithereens. From now on, all battles, no matter how nobly advertised, are overshadowed by this cynical self-denial. The modern development of types of weaponry contributes a good deal, directly and indirectly, to the tension between the consciousness of heroes and that of cowards. In the dispute between cavalry infantry and artillery over precedence this tension has a subliminal effect for it generally holds that the more horrifyingly a weapon works even from a distance the more cowardly in principle its user can be since the late middle ages we have witnessed the ascent of long-range weapons to to systems that decide wars with a rifle the infantry soldier without great risk can bring down the most noble knight Thus, world history has voted for the technology of gunpowder, and against the type of weapon used by Cavaliers. With a field cannon, in turn a whole pile of infantry soldiers can be blown to bits. From this has resulted the strategic primary of artillery, that is of the scientific type of weapon, that in the best schizoid manner produces the most terrible effects from the hidden position and great distance. Today's air force and missile systems are, for their part, only extrapolated artilleries. The latest consequence of the technical principle, shooting. Napoleon was not a representative of this type of thinking for nothing, and it is no accident that since the First World War, war is waged under the sign of artillery battles of materials. Contemporary literature after the first world war puzzles about the schizophrenia of the unknown hero, who bore the horrors of war, but was essentially more technician than fighter, more civil servant than hero. What we have now described as the first round between the cynicism of soldiers and the cynicism of the generals has been continually repeated since the bourgeois age on a higher level and on a greatly extended scale. The bourgeois inherited a bit of the heroic tradition from the feudal era, carrying it on into the broad patriotic masses. The citizen is hero, a standard problem of the last two hundred years. Is bourgeois heroism possible? We find the answers in the military traditions of the last century centuries. Naturally, the militarised bourgeois put everything into developing its own heroic tradition, and equally naturally, the neo-kinical bourgeois proletarian strand tried to make its case against it. On the one hand, therefore, we find much genuine idealism, Prussianism, boasting, and lies. On the other, a lot of critical realism, laughter, irony, satire, bitterness, and resistance. How did this come about? In the Napoleonic era, a previously unimaginable militarization of the masses began in Europe. Bourgeois society arose not only through the expansion of capitalist forms of trade and production, but at the same time, politically, through a broad, patriotically motivated self-recruiting of society into the army. The nation became the armed fatherland, a type of super-weapon that wielded political that welded political egos together it is said that in the revolutionary wars of the 1790s there was for the first time something like a national volunteer army that is practically a mass heroism that mobilized the type of weapon called souls patriotic hearts the nationalization of the masses implies not only an ideological event but above all the greatest event of modern military history. With it, collective schizophrenia reached a new historical level. Whole nations mobilized themselves in external wars. From then on the tendency to total war increased, in which the entire life of society would become implicitly, or explicitly, a means for war. From the universities to the hospitals, from the churches to the factories, from art to kindergartens, on this level, however, the cynicism of the coward and the cynicism of the citizen hero became entangled in far more complicated tensions than each other became entangled in far more complicated tensions with each other than before. The cowardly wish to stay alive sought new forms of expression in the nation-state, explicitly, as pacifism or internationalism e.g. of the socialist or anarchist type, implicitly as the Schweik principle muddling through the ethos of malingerers, system D. In Europe between, say, 1914 and 1945, whoever wanted to represent the party of one's own survival inevitably had to take something from the socialist, the pacifist, or from Schweik. The sort of entanglements the cynical and the cynical attitude to soldiery can lead to in the 20th century is shown by the German example. In the autumn of 1918, the German Empire collapsed in an anarchic spectacle. All types screamed out their views and self-representations all at once. The militaristic nationalists as heroes who did not even quite want to see that the war had really been lost. The Weimar parties as civil mediating forces and procrastinators who wanted to prevent the worst and try a new beginning. And finally the Spartacists, Communists, Expressionists, Pacifists, Dadaists etc. as the cowardly faction now on the offensive who damned war without qualification and demanded a a new society based on new principles. One has to be familiar with these collisions in order to understand how German fascism of the type shown in the Hitler movement received its unmistakable quality that can be precisely localised in history. Hitler was one of those fanatical champions of a petty bourgeois heroism that, in the friction with the absolutely unheroic, cowardly, life-affirming currents and mentalities during the time of the collapse between 1917 and 1919 culminated in the most advanced position of military cynicism for that time, namely fascism, as destructive realisms of the contemporary Schweiks, pacifists, civilians, socialists, Bolshevists, and so on. Fascist military cynicism is a late chapter in the problem of the citizen-as-hero it presupposes a high level of schizoid distortions, until finally even a de-classed petty bourgeois like Hitler could cling to the image of the hero, especially to an image that was nihilistically ravaged by the war. They wanted to lose their egos in this image. Ich an es. These interconnections are as complicated as they are saddening, They are so because they reflect a systematic confusion of the will to live. This will to live, with its hopes and identifications, clings on to the militarized nation-states, from which the greatest threat to life expectancy emanates. In the schizoid society, individuals can in fact hardly still know how they can pursue their own authentic vital interests, and when they are making themselves into a component of a defensive, destructive machinery. Of the state and military. Driven by the desire to obtain protection and security for themselves, they tie themselves almost irrevocably to the political military apparatuses that sooner or later will bring about, or at least slide into, conflict with rivals. But even militarized fascism lies far below the convoluted windings of military cynicism in the age of nuclear strategy. With the emergence of global weapons of annihilation, weapons that make any question concerning heroism illusory, the tension between heroes, hesitators and cowards enters into a completely chaotic phase. Defensive motives apparently gain the upper hand everywhere. Each of the nuclear superpowers openly includes the heroic, hesitating and cowardly motives of the other in its strategic calculations. Each has to accept that the opponent, in the last analysis, builds up its strategy on the other's cowardice. That is, of course, an armed cowardice having at its disposal a battle-ready hero apparatus. The world situation today has brought about a permanent military eye contact between two cowardly heroic hesitators who both arm themselves unrestrainedly to show the other side that being cowardly will remain the only sensible stance and that it will never be able to be anything more than a hesitator. The position of the hero remains unoccupied. The world will not see any more victors. This implies a revolutionarily new kind of duel, because duelers in the past regarded each other as potential heroes. Today everyone knows about the opponent's realistic and even indispensable cowardice. The world still lives on because East and West think of each other as cowardly, highly-armed Schweiks, who, after all, the loud-mouthed boasting has been vented, have only one thing in mind, namely, to live on this planet a little longer. But since the military process on the global level has arrived at this nadir of a heroically cowardly hesitation, the previous system of values has been completely unhinged. The tension, at least theoretically, has dissolved into an open equivalence of all temperaments. Heroism might be quite good, But hesitation is at least as good. And cowardice is perhaps even better. The old negative has become as positive as the old positive has become negative. On the summit of military escalation, then, has the real fight become superfluous? The military alone cannot answer this question, especially not in an age that everywhere has proclaimed the illusory primacy of politics over the military. The danger will continue to grow as long as political systems produce the means, ends and ideas to come into a military, hegemonic and annihilating contest with one another. The dynamics of armament in the strategic and scientific area, as mad then as it is now, proves that this is still undiminished the case. Now, as then, each side fantasizes that the ability to survive can only mean being able to defend oneself. That defensiveness as such has become the greatest threat to survival, is perceived not head-on, quietly, in a way demanding consequences, but only secondarily, obliquely, unclearly. Each side assumes that only a balance of progressive terror can secure so-called peace. This conviction is simultaneously realistic and absolutely paranoid. Realistic because it is adapted to the interaction of paranoid systems. Paranoid because in the long run, and essentially, it is completely unrealistic. In this system of games, it is thus realistic to be mistrustful to the point of a constant state of alert. At the same time, mistrust sustains the pressure to permanently continue the build-up of arms more weapons could obviate mistrust modern politics has accustomed us to looking on a massive à deux as the quintessence of realistic consciousness the way in which two or more powers and intricately thought-out interaction drive each other crazy provides contemporary human beings with their model of reality those who accommodate themselves to this modern-day society as it is accommodate themselves in the last instance to this paranoid realism. And because there is probably no one who, at least subliminally and clear moments, does not understand this, everyone is caught up in modern military cynicism if they do not expressly and consciously resist it. Those who resist have to today, and probably for a good while longer, put up with being defamed as dreamers. As people who, although perhaps led by good intentions, the Sermon on the Mount, have nonetheless begun to flee from reality. But this is not true. The concept of reality, like no other concept, is used falsely. We must first flee into reality. Out of the systematized paranoia of our everyday world. Here, in the middle of military political considerations, a therapeutic problem clearly emerges that possesses both political and spiritual dimensions. How can subjects of power, sick with mistrust but nonetheless realistic, break down their destructiveness and their projections of hostility as long as the interactions of these systems until now has proved that weakness in the face of the opponent has always been exploited as an opportunity to strike again. Each thinks of itself as an essentially defensive power and projects aggressive potentials onto the other. In such a structure a relaxation of tension is a priori impossible under the conditions of the mania for making enemies it remains realistic to stay tense and ready for battle neither power can show any weakness without provoking the other's strength with never-ending exertion the opponents must work for a small terrain on which something like self-limitation becomes possible that is a weakening of the consciousness of being strong A relaxing of the feeling of being inflexible. This tiny terrain of self-limitation is to date the only bridgehead of reason in the military cynical process. Everything will depend on its growth. For human beings it was difficult enough to learn how to fight. And everything they have so far have achieved, they have done so as fighters who have accepted challenges and through them developed into themselves. See Toynbee's concept of challenge. But to learn how not to fight would be even more difficult, because it would be something completely new. Future military history will be written on a completely new front. There, where the struggle to desist struggling will be carried out. The decisive blows will be those that are not struck. Under them, our strategic subjectivities and our defensive identities will collapse.